Welcome to The Table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. I'm going to say down here because um, it's the sun is creeping. <laughs> so during the Easter season, resurrection, I mean, it's what it's about, right? And I say Easter season because you know this is a season, right? It began, it began on Easter Sunday and it will continue. This is, we call this Easter tide. It's the Easter season of the church where we're going to over and over again beat you over the head with the idea that Jesus was resurrected um, because we all need to be beat over the head because it's the hardest thing to believe, right? So um, during the Easter season, resurrection is high on the list of things that bring us together. It is what brings us together. It's why we are here. And whatever we make of it, whatever questions we continue to have about resurrection, this kind of up from the grave thing, this love that's stronger than death thing. It's central to our faith. I hope you know that. It is central to Christian faith. Not just that it happened to Jesus, but we believe that because of him, it is in our futures too. It is what we witnessed to this morning and Kenny and Miles' baptism, it's what we professed. I don't know if you know this, maybe you just speak it and you don't know what you say. It's what we professed when we spoke together. The Apostles' Creed and said, I believe, we believe. We believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. If nothing else, this affirmation means that we expect our our life-giving community with God and one another in this world to continue to the next one. We trust that there is no expiration date at all on all of this. What that good news that is for us. There's no expiration date. That it is durable, not disposable, what we do here. That the God who made us once can make us again in, in any world of God's own choosing. The problem is, though, that we don't know anyone, I don't know anyone, I don't know anyone who can prove resurrection. Do you? I don't know anyone who can disprove it either. I don't know, I don't even know anyone who can explain it well. We get paid to do that, but I don't do it well. 
So why? Why on earth do we go on affirming something that can't be proven or explained? Maybe it is just wishful thinking to believe in resurrection or to believe in something called the resurrection of the dead and the reuniting of the saints throughout time. Maybe it's just wishful thinking because what a beautiful thing that is to believe in that. Although I would say that there are people I do not wish to be reunited with <laughs> after death. <laughs> I'm sure you have those people too. In one of the churches I served in North Carolina, I remember there was this widow who visited, uh, who I visited soon after her husband's death. The fact that he died was like a tremendous surprise to all of us, that the fact that he died before her. She was very ill and had been very ill for a very long period of time, and she relied on him for everything, from like toast in the morning to turning out the lights at night. And he reminded her of that way much more than he ever should have. He made sure she knew she was nothing, not even alive, without him. Then one day, she heard a big crash in the, the bathroom, and then he was gone. And people from the church poured in to see her, pulling up chairs to her bedside. She's still very ill and saying all the usual things you would say to somebody. Well, at least you know where he is now. He just went on ahead of you to get things ready. You'll be, you'll be together again soon. And on the, the particular day that I remember being with her, spending time with this woman, she looked at me with like these big pleading eyes and said, will I never get away from him in this world or the next? <laughs> she believed in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come even if she didn't like what she thought were the implications of that. As a pastor, I usually let other people do most of the talking about the life of the world to come kind of stuff. I normally just sit quietly and kind of listen to people as they make sense of it in their moment um, of crisis because people imagine it so differently. Each of us imagine it so differently and no one knows for sure, right? So my words don't quite help. Even Jesus was a little vague on the subject after he got back. All we really have are a handful of crossing over stories and both, you know, a, yeah, a handful of crossing over stories and the great, this great deal of freedom to decide for ourselves, both individually and together as a church, what we will make of all those stories and vague vague stories that Jesus leaves us. And today's story from the book of Acts, on our 50 days outside together, both physically outside and scripturally outside, today's story is another one we must figure out what we'll make out of it. In my experience, the story of Acts 9 is the most ignored resurrection story in scripture. Everyone knows about Lazarus, but today we meet Lady Lazarus. Tabitha, to be precise, or Dorcas, 
same person, depending on whether you speak Aramaic or Greek, who has been raised from the dead by Peter and restored to the community of widows in Lydda who could not imagine doing life without her. They pined for her. Technically, it's a resuscitation story since Tabitha is restored to life in this world and not the life in the world to come. But, but that doesn't explain why it gets such little press and why you likely have never heard it. Is it because the story's an Acts and not the Gospels, maybe? Is it because Peter does the raising and not Jesus, maybe? Is it because Tabitha was a she and not a he? Maybe, probably. Whatever reason, Luke says she was a disciple. Except this is the first time ever in the New Testament Luke or anyone uses the feminine form of the word disciple. Her name meant gazelle. And it says she was devoted to good works and acts of charity. Yet none of this protected her from falling ill. None of this protected her from dying. The, the best die the same way the worst die, right? The only difference being that the best may have some friends. So distraught to let them go. So distraught to let them leave this life that they send for the most powerful help they can find. Peter, in this case, who had just healed a paralyzed man in nearby Joppa. Please come to us without delay. The two, two friends of, of Gazelle begged him. So Peter got up and he went with them. It was 11 miles from Joppa to Lydda, so there was that much delay at least. And it, it, it is hard to know what the hurry was about because after all, Tabitha was dead. She was gonna be dead anyways. Her friends had already washed her body. They had already laid it out. And when Peter arrived to see for himself, Luke says, the same two disciples who had fetched him from Joppa had him upstairs. They led him upstairs into a room full of weeping widows. No one said a word to him. They just cried and, and they held out their arms so, so he could see the clothes, all the clothes they were wearing that Tabitha had made for them while she was still alive. What, what skill? What beauty. But Peter was less interested in the clothes than he was in the disciple who, who had them made. The first thing he did was he put all of the crying women outside into the courtyard. He pushed them outside, which meant there were no witnesses in the room. Then he knelt down to pray, though we do not know what he prayed. It doesn't say. And when he was ready, Luke says, Peter turned to the body, not turned to Tabitha, but to the body and said, get up. As in Lazarus, come out. And Lady Lazarus does come out and she opens her eyes and she sees Peter and she sits up. Peter then offers her his hand and helps her up as if as if he had just talked her out of buying a pair of shoes that were way too tight for her. And Luke says that once, once the saints and the widows in the courtyard heard of this, saw that she was alive, Luke says, word spread throughout all of Joppa and many believed in the Lord. 
sounds like a perfectly good story to me. While Peter was calling Tabitha back to life in the intimacy of a closed room, her friends, the saints and widows of her circle, they believed. God met them outside, right there in that courtyard, shut out from the miracle inside, yes, but encountered by the living God. Sounds like a perfectly good story to me, but many have debated that it is not. Scholars have pointed out that there are several details missing from this story that really ought to be there. Just as there are several details present in the story that really ought not to be there. The problem is not who is in the story or where, or where it appears. The problem is that the story lag, lacks theological clarity. For instance, why did Peter fail to invoke the name of Jesus when he told Tabitha to get up? He, he did it just moments before when he healed the paralyzed man in Joppa. Jesus Christ heals you, he said. He said to the man, get up and make your bed, but not here. He doesn't use Jesus' name at all. And why did he send everyone outside before he healed her? Isn't the whole point of a miracle to have as many witnesses as possible to the miracle? And then there is the problem of Tabitha's good deeds. Isn't it a mistake to point out that she was devoted to good works and acts of charity? There, there was nothing like that in Lazarus's story or the, or the story of the paralyzed man either. The only thing those two had going for them was that they needed help. That they were beyond all human help. Not that they were great helpers themselves. So why mention the good works, the acts of charity, the tunics, and the other clothing? Do you, do you want people to think that, that Tabitha sewed her way to new life? These are the kinds of problems scholars point out. And, and since the text offers no interpretation of these anomalies, many say that there is a limit to the usefulness of this story. An odd miracle may make an impression, but what kind of impression? And people may come to believe because of it, but what do they believe even? To avoid misunderstanding, don't you need the story, the miracle, to be clothed in explicit theological meaning? But even that question strikes me as odd. Are we excused from paying too much attention to a story in the Bible because it doesn't line up theologically? As far as I can tell, that is less of a problem for us than the other gleaming bigger problem here that exists for all of us. That try as we might, we are not able to reproduce this miracle ourselves. That's the big problem. We're not able to reproduce it ourselves. We pray for people we love who are dying, if not dead. We too call on the most powerful help we can think of often, but our prayers do not work the way Peter's did somehow. Our, our gazelle's eyes stay closed. Her too tight shoes stay on her feet while we stain our tunics with tears afterwards, right? That's the bigger problem. I have a friend who often reports miraculous things to me from time to time. He's kind of known for it. 
No resurrections yet. <laughs> Unless you count the kind of spiritual kind of resurrection. But, but he'll talk about other things that defy the usual laws of nature, like lights that appear in the dark, and people who get well without doctors, and turtles that say significant things. Uh, and most of the time, I try to listen as best I can. But last time, I just got a little irritated. So what? I'm sure that's wonderful for you. But if it doesn't happen to everybody, then why the heck does it matter that that happened to you? What is it supposed to mean? In my words, you could hear an echo of that same craving for the miracle to be clothed in explicit theological meaning. And he said, well, it means you, you don't know how things work. You think you know, but you don't. That's what it means. Like when Jesus came back from the dead and said, people thought they knew how things worked. Then they found out they didn't know how things work. That's an important thing for all of us to know, right? Get a point. I mean, I, I don't know how, how a fig tree sets its buds while there is still snow on the ground. I don't know how that works. I don't know how a sitting hen turns an egg into a chick. I don't know how that works. I'm not even sure I know how a fax machine works. <laughs> I know these things work, though. Like, I do know they work. I've seen them. I know they work, but I don't know how they work. So why can't there be other things at work between this world and the next that I don't understand? Maybe this is what the widows were forced forced to realize outside in that courtyard. One of my favorite saints, um, Nicholas of, of Cusa, uh, he's a 15th century German cleric, he said this, which I love. Um, I hope it's meaningful for you. There are at least three kinds of ignorance that show up in those who seek God. Three kinds. First kind, there are those who do not know that they do not know. Second kind, there are those who know that they do not know, but who think they ought to know. Finally, there are those who know that they do not know and who receive this learned ignorance as God's own gift. Because it, it relieves them from the terrible burden of thinking they have to know everything God knows. Because it, it frees them to live in a state of perpetual wonder. Because it saves them from ruling out new life for themselves and for those they love on the grounds that they know how things work and life like that isn't possible. And St. Nicholas says this third one, this is the very high level of ignorance we all should achieve. These are the people who do not know where the wind comes from or where it goes, but who can live with that because, because they trust that God knows that. 
I think Gazelle's friends were those kind of people, or at least became those kind of people outside of that courtyard. They wouldn't have sent for Peter in the first place if they hadn't already let go of what they, they once thought they knew about life and death. And when he showed their friend to be alive again, well, that reinforced the ignorance in the best possible way. We don't know how things work, praise God. Praise God that we don't know, I imagine, is what they said in that courtyard. But even if Peter had come out of Tabitha's room and said, I'm sorry, she's gone, I think that same ignorance would have saved them in the end. We don't know how things work, but God does. So let's go do what we know how to do. Let's get Peter some food and say our prayers and tell stories about Tabitha all night long under the moonlight in the courtyard while we wait to see who God will raise up next in this community. Isn't that how it works? We are the people who don't know how things work, but we trust that God does know how things work, whose high-level ignorance frees us to live in unusual ways and say unusual things as Easter people and even things as odd as we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the world that is to come. What will that look like? How does that work? Who will be there? Who will not be there? Hear the good news. We do not know. And St. Nicholas would say that is good news. We can live in that because we trust God does know. Would you pray with me? God, we do not know. We do not know um, the mystery of baptism. We do not know. I do not know. God, I wish I knew. I wish I was taught that in seminary. How water becomes this belonging sacrament that initiates us into your cosmic story. We do not know. Thank you, God, for that ignorance. I do not know, God, how this table works. We do not know. I wish I had been taught that in seminary. I do not know how somehow bread and juice become the body and blood of Christ. I do not know how somehow bread and juice become a place where you can do crazy things in our hearts and in our lives and turn us toward you. I wish I knew, but God, thank you for that ignorance. God, I, I wish I, I wish I have, I had witnessed resurrection. I wish I could have figured out a way to call back to life my grandmother and my grandfather. I wish I had found a way to call back to life that baby we helped bury. But I do not know what I do not know. And yet, I have been relieved to count that a gift. We all have. And so it, as Easter people, God, we each have our things that we are praying for, things we long to know. And so the, your question for us is, will we be 
Will we be the people who do not know, but constantly strive to know and think we ought to know? Or will we be that higher level ignorant people who do not know, but count that as a gift? And allow our faith to be enriched because of it and draw closer to you because of it. We join together, God, in that prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.